Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Jess Phillips and welcome back to Yours Sincerely. Now, most of you might know I'm an MP in Birmingham, but what you might not know is that I've always been a prolific letter writer and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Louise Minchin is a broadcaster, journalist and author best known for two decades presenting on the BBC Breakfast Sofa, alongside documentaries fronting some of the UK's biggest TV events. And of course, she was also a brilliant contestant on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here in the autumn of 2021. Her new book, Fearless Adventures with Extraordinary Women, is a celebration of some brave and trailblazing women who are breaking down barriers, smashing records and challenging stereotypes. Today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, hello Louise, how are you? Oh my gosh, I'm fine, thank you very much. It's lovely to be able to talk to you at length. Um, You are tired though, I assume, because you ran, at at time of record, you ran the London Marathon. Yeah, I didn't know whether I was going to say that, but I am, yeah, at time of recording... I mean, if I ran a marathon, I would literally tell anybody who stood next to me for five seconds. Okay, well, I did bring the medal... (laughs) so yeah oh thank you for letting me talk about it because it's so it's such a crazy thing to do so yesterday I ran the London Marathon along with I think about 50,000 other people but most excitingly I ran it with my daughter um, who's 21 and we literally ran every single step and there were a lot of steps together the whole lot we didn't run them all uh, because um, uh, it's a long story because you're not mad 
Yeah, because, well, mostly because I actually trained to run walk. So I was trained to do four minutes and 30 of running and then 30 seconds of walking, which for me is the way to do it because you get like a mini break every yeah. five minutes. And then um, every minute you're like, you're looking forward to the break. It's a bit like being yeah. in labour, like the, work, exactly. the best bit of being in labour is the moment where your contraction is at its worst because you know it's you, about to go yeah, away. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. And this you know it's going to be okay with... for a bit and then it's going to be really bad, but it's then gonna it's going to be okay. So bad. I just think that people who run the marathon, I just think uh, you are, must be a mixture of mad and just like bionic. I, I just think it's an amazing Jess, thing says, to I do. don't. I don't feel bionic at all. A lot of it, I mean, you know, I'm in agony today, but a lot of it is about mental resilience, actually. Does it hurt um, your body now, though? Does it hurt? Uh, yeah, there's one leg that's particularly bad. Oh, I mean, it's basically man. everything from below my waist, and then even my arms hurt. Oh, because of just like because the, you're going the like this, you know. On it. Yeah, it, and oh. you know, you use your arms to run as well, don't you? So, and then weird stuff happens. Like I've got a rear, like something in my my leggings has rubbed my oh, back yeah. raw. <laughs> Why do people do it? I mean, you're not That's the first person question. to mention this story. Um, how did you keep going? I remember um, a, a woman, Isabel Hardman, a journalist, she uh, ran it for a domestic abuse charity. Yes. And she said to me that she wrote the names of the women who died on her arm. And when she was like not able to keep going, she just looked at their names and that kept her going. What kept you going? I would um, not be I able think... to keep going. Yesterday, so because I was running with Mia and actually she was running for an anti-stalking charity and I was running for a, a cancer charity that helps young people um, with cancer to keep moving and do exercise through chemotherapy. So we both had our kind of what you call the why, don't yeah. you? Um, but yesterday, I mean, it was very much about... Um, and it will come to it because I'm going to write a letter to Mia. <laughs> through this Bless podcast her. but I knew that she's she's 21 she's got 32 years on me you know she's built like a runner she's really light and she's really fast and I knew essentially she, she she's a much better runner than I am but I have an enormous experience with endurance races and I just I knew it might be one of those things with the tortoise and the hare you know she could hair off and then eventually I might catch her but actually she didn't thankfully because she actually found it really tough she got mm. to like I'd say about two-thirds of the way through and was overwhelmed was literally yeah. overwhelmed by it you know what it's like being a mum when when your child is going through something hard, then, I mean, I literally didn't care what we did, whether we ran, yeah. we walked, whatever. I just did what, she, what it took to get her around. Looking after her got me around yesterday. Yeah, that, that would definitely help. You know, mm. you, I don't think I could do it, but if I had if to you... do it for my kid, then I'd do it. There you, know, you go. It's like that thing, lifting a lifting a lorry or whatever. You can do it for your child. Lift a double-decker bus, couldn't you? I so... mean, the day my children suggest running a marathon is the day I will eat my hat. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, they don't run down the stairs. I, they just live in their bedroom, so I look forward to this future active time that they might uh, they might take that on. So, are you? This is all about uh, letter writing. So, yes. are you much of a letter writer, or were you back in the old days? Back in, because I am. I do come from the really old days when letters <laughs> were a thing. <laughs> you know, I, I talked to my daughters about when I went to live in, oh, and I've got a letter here actually that somebody wrote about me when I lived in Argentina and Chile for a year. Um, and it, back in those days, when I left her, you know, I was 21. So I was my daughter's age. And I went to go and live in Argentina for a year. So 7,000 miles from home. 
<laughs> no mobile phone, no internet. The, the the most sophisticated thing we had, which was we were really excited about, was a fax. And my dad was like, <laughs> look, I can put a letter in here and it will come out to you 7,000 miles away. And we were like, no way. That's amazing. So really out of contact. So, yeah, I wrote letters from there, wrote letters home. My my dad's a really good... My, my, my dad's like a note writer. Um, and actually letters... Yeah, letters have an important, really important part in my life because one of the things I used to write about, I was at school and I used to, my best friend didn't go to the same school, so we'd write letters. I know, we used to seems... write, I used to write letters to my friend just to, like in the half term because we there weren't you go. together. So weird. Like, kids would never think of doing that now. No way would you do that, would you? But you would no. write them a text or Snapchat them or something, wouldn't you? I'd write letters to Bryony, who lived four doors down from me. Did you? <laughs> Like, what were we writing about? I just think that's well, amazing that we bothered. I know what I was writing about because I used to write letters to my best friend who's called Steph and we used to go on holiday as families mm. in Cornwall, in North Cornwall. And there was this particular beach we used to go to and on the beach there were this really cool, like, gang of families and they were having a really fun time and they're all surfing and they're playing guitars and they're all, like, having such fun. And I'm in, with my friend, but she wasn't always there, with, like, really youngest siblings kind of looking over really enviously at them going, I want to be in their gang. And, um, and I used to write letters to Steph, which is kind of embarrassing, <laughs> about this boy. Of course, it was always a boy. That's yeah. what we were always writing about. Yeah, who was a bit older than me. Well, I didn't know because I never spoke to him, by the way. Um, and he used to play his guitar and have slightly long hair and have a Kinks T-shirt. So I used to write these letters. Unfortunately, she couldn't find them. And some years later, I'm trying to think how many years it would be, like 15 years later, I went to uni. And after leaving uni and becoming really good friends with this other girl called Ali, um, we realised that we used to go to the same place, same time, same holiday, same beach. And I said to her... Oh, my God, was she in the cool gang? She was the sister of my now husband. <gasps> no! Who was the guy? No! <laughs> yes! Oh, my God. <laughs> I think of all the boys on guitar with guitars on beaches that I met in my youth. I'm quite glad I didn't marry some of them. <laughs> well, I did. As if. That is unbelievable. It's funny, isn't it? That is so isn't it funny? unbelievable. There's so many weird things about that. First of all, oh, yeah, so, so imagine, so this is like so many years later. So I was 14 probably when I was writing the letters. This was probably when I was about 27 or something, or maybe 25, so over 10 years later. And I said, did your brother wear a Kinks T-shirt? She goes, how do you know that? I'm like, oh, my gosh, I used to write letters about him to my best friend. As if you married the boy that you admired the boy. from afar. I spent that a lot. Is... I know. I spent a lot of time looking for him as well because, like, I, I mean, obviously, I met a few other boys <laughs> on the way. In the meantime, but, but no, none of them were the right one. Just the kinks. No one can ever live. Up oh, we to see. The he still has a t-shirt. He still has a. He still. Oh, that's I mean, amazing. It's bonkers, isn't it? That's almost enough to make me really believe in fate. Oh, um, it's so that, it's, that is that is lovely. What a lovely story. <laughs> um, and you know, you wrote about him, so you remembered yeah. it, like you committed yes. it to your memory because you you'd written about it. You think that you remember a lot, but actually, when you read, right. when I read letters now, I'm like, I don't remember at all. Sometimes the people I'm talking about, I think, haven't really? got a clue who this we were talking about in these letters you kept a lot i've did got you? loads of letters Have from you? when i was a teenage yeah. kid yeah yeah from when i was a teenager uh between me and my mates uh my handwriting has taken a dive since then it we used to be quite good but we used I to can't. do it more didn't we well That's i can't i mean i can't 
like even sign my, you know, I'm like trying to sign best wishes on a book or something. Yeah. I can't even do it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We've lost the skill, a skill. of, of um, writing. My husband is a brilliant letter writer, actually. He's so he can he writes. I mean, I, I feel bit I feel a bit bad about it because, you know, I'm meant to be a writer, but he's the best letter writer, and he really takes time. And you know, we have to write a thank you letter or somebody's died or something he writes the most beautiful thoughtful letters and I have said to him actually and I think he's done it once could he just please write me a letter because he writes yeah. so beautifully just so I can have it and keep it so have you you've got a letter there so I've got is a letter. this your letter this is, of note no this is this is I mean I can't really read all of it because it's it's really bad about me <laughs> so it's this, rude about you. It's like yeah, hate yeah, mail. Yeah. It's really rude. No, no. It's kind of like it's like it's teasing mail. Okay. So this is so picture the scene. So I mentioned tonight that I went to go and live in Chile and Argentina, and when I was twenty one, and this this was um uh, when I left uni, I'd studied Spanish, and I went. My first job was working as an interpreter for what was then Operation Rally, who did expeditions all around oh, the yeah, world. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, that was but like yeah. when teenagers went off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And with their backpacks, and they had to mm. go and do tough stuff in mm. re- remote parts of the world. And I, oh, in those days, you'd I applied for a job because it was in The Guardian. <laughs> you know, the newspaper, it'd be like tiny bits. That's how you'd get a job. You'd yeah. look at The Guardian newspaper, to, job ad. My mum used to make me read, the, I think it was The Wednesday Guardian, had all the public sector jobs, and she would get okay. it and make me sit so at the table I think, and read them. I think media might have been Monday or whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah know. that's right, yeah, like yeah. media was Monday. <laughs> and uh, public sector was Wednesday. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. No. I literally planned my entire future reading uh, the jobs in The Guardian. So there was a little advert for a job looking for, you know, looking for interpreters to go on expedition in Chile. And I was like, well, that sounds amazing. So yeah. I got the job and then I went and lived in this... Um, so Chile's a really long, skinny country, but right right down the bottom of it um, in Patagonia, in a tiny, tiny um, community, really. And I really loved it. And because I was one of the few people who spoke Spanish, I'd have to do all the, the PR, so all the interviews and stuff in Spanish. You know, I was like 23 or something. It was ridiculous. So this is my reference, but is my fake reference from my boss. And it's written, can you see, it's all typed out. Yeah. To whom it may concern. <laughs> Shall I read you a bit of it? Yeah, you go on, read me I was, some of it. I was quite badly behaved. Louise came here on the expedition in Chile as one of four interpreters based at headquarters. To begin with, Louise appeared to be of a shy and retiring nature, but she soon proved this wrong and became more and more mad <laughs> as the expedition progressed. So much so, she became a real handful and we had to send her out into the field for three weeks to try and calm her down. This backfired. However, as she returned to headquarters, even worse... <laughs> So he's written this as a fake, like yeah, as a homage fake. to it, you. It, yeah. It's fake, it's fake. She's great company and her laugh can be heard throughout region, uh, that's 11, particularly when she's attempting to hold a conversation on the radio. Uh, she also did a great job in the role of public relations, almost too good, I think, and we're very worried about her relationship with a particular red-blooded Chilean venture. <laughs> I probably they had no, they had nothing to worry about because I still remembered Mr. Kinks. Um, <laughs> we, we we don't want to send her home, but her work 
Oh, it's funny. Although excellent, never seems to get finished as her mind can't concentrate on anything for more than five minutes and she seems to enjoy talking on the telephone far more. The computer is not her favourite machine. Her fitness has undoubtedly improved during the expedition, although her passion for chocolate has probably slowed her down. I would not recommend her for a staff position again as she causes too many distractions within the office, resulting in everybody else making mistakes and achieving nothing at all. Oh, I mean, that's nice that you've kept it and framed it. The, you know, those sorts of things, Those the idea of something, the formality of a letter being used uh, as... Uh, teasing. Uh, teasing, and also yeah. just like, you know, because actually it's very fond, isn't it? It's very it's fond. It's really fond. You wouldn't print out an email like that, would you? No, you wouldn't print <laughs> I out wouldn't. an email. I yeah, don't know why I like, have With like it. AOL written at the bottom or whatever <laughs> it is. So I've asked you to think about uh, the three letters that you would want to write. So the first would be to the person who means the world to you. So who would that be? Well, I, I mean, there's three. It's hard, isn't it? It is hard, but it doesn't mean you don't love the other ones. No, no. Um, <laughs> I was going to originally write one to my husband, but but we've already established that we've he's, established he's that a better he is... he's a better letter writer. So yeah. let's leave and... that. Also, I mean, you're destined to be t together forever, so you don't yeah. need to bother. So Destiny boring. has sorted it. <laughs> so I changed it today because of what Mia and I did yesterday. So I have another daughter, Scarlett, and I love them equally and differently. Um, so I'm not choosing between the two. I'm glad you said differently because people, you know, this myth that you don't love more one more than the other. No, I don't love them more. Like I, I, yeah. I definitely like my children for different things. And on yes. different days, I definitely like them better than the other one sometimes. I just think... They're different. So the love yeah. I have, our relationship is different. We, you know, bond over different things. We care about different things. So I love them differently. And my parents definitely, even though my dad would deny this and my mum's dead, so I can libel her, you know, without any worry about a backlash. She definitely loved me more. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is that my brothers would all say that as well. Okay, so okay. maybe she, she was conning us all into thinking that. So that's that's okay. So my dad, he, he it was his 80th last year. We went went away for a weekend or something with him, and we all talked about him. And all of us, myself, my brother, my sister, and all of his grandchildren, we every single one of us thinks that we're his favourite. I mean, that's that <laughs> is an absolute skill. I wish I had that. Because Isn't my kids are always like, you like the other one better. That's all I ever say. You, oh, you never tell him off when you tell me off in this. So I've definitely not got that skill. But that is that is that's obviously good parenting, isn't it? If everybody thinks. I think that's good parenting, isn't it? Must it's... be, must be. Anyway, so she's not my favourite. She's my different <laughs> one. She's one of my two children who I love differently. Um, anyway, so I think after yesterday, um, I'd write a letter to her because I just feel so. You know, she's only 21. She decided... I think she's watched me do lots of endurance events, so she thinks it's going to be easy. You know, the first thing she did after running it yesterday was, like, I'd completely underestimated how tough that was. And I think that takes um, yeah. enormous self-awareness, doesn't it, to be able to say yeah. that? But she... So we've done a lot of training together, and it, the training's hard, really hard. Um... And yesterday was really tough for her. So she got to about 30 kilometres. That's about two thirds of the way through. And it's very overwhelming. You know, you're doing something incredibly physically hard. The crowds in London were 
utterly unbelievable. I have never known anything like it. There are like 20 deep around Canary Wharf, you know, just absolutely packed. And you're sort of buoyed along by this wave Cheering. of sound, yeah. which is very overwhelming, actually. In a brilliant, I mean, I was just being, to be honest with you, I was kind of like floating along the cheers. Um, but it was really tough for her. And she found, you know, she, at that point, it was everything was in pain. And I just think... We gritted it out together and she finished and I'm so proud of her. And I'm not just proud of her. We had this wonderful conversation around Buckingham Palace, as you do, mm-hmm. walking in a marathon because at that stage that's all we could do. And we just turned around to each other and we're like, we, I feel so lucky that I've got a daughter and she feels lucky, I think, as well to have me where we've got this relationship when we can go through something really hard, really tough, where she's cried, been in agony, etc. And we're not just okay, we're more than okay. We got through it together and I just think it's a really special relationship, that. And then if I kind of rewind to why I do any sport at all, actually, now, um, 10 years ago I was doing some research for a school and they'd done some research into why particularly girls don't do sport, why they give Mm. it up age 15, like I did. And one of the things they said, if you want your children, your daughters to do sport, the mum has to do it. Because otherwise they just think, oh, that's what dads do. It's just a male thing. We don't need to do sport. And so I literally, that was one of the main reasons I kind of took up sport. And I cannot tell you many times, Jess, I've knocked on her door over many years going, hi, do you want to go for a run? No. Hi, do you want to go for a run? No. Hi, do you want to go for a run? Please, mummy, leave me alone. OK? I've done that over years and years and I nagged her into eventually, in, in lockdown, she started running with me. And here we are, however many years later, I running a marathon together. I think lockdown definitely, um, very few, but um, certainly some uh, upsides. Because yeah. I, I went out running for the first time Did in my you? life uh, during lockdown. Yeah. And I suppose it was just sort of like, if the state only sanctions you a certain amount of time outside the house, I'm going to take it. Of I'll, course. I'll, 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 <laughs> Bank especially it. somebody like me who was under so much scrutiny not to break a thing, like yeah. not, you know, so I'm going out for my exercise and I had to like physically look like I was exercising for anybody yep. who might see me. So, you know, all the gear, no idea. Like, I'm going to look like I'm going for a run. And I actually really, really, really enjoyed it. I Did mean, it's you? painful, but the the freeing nature of it. The, the weird thing is, is that I did listen on my earphones whilst I was running to the entire OJ Simpson trial. Uh, and so now when I walk around the neighbourhood where I live... I associate it with the O.J. With the- Simpson trial <laughs> because I was listening to the O.J. Simpson. I've no idea what possessed me to listen to. And then, like, deep dive podcasts into the O.J. Simpson trial. I became, like, obsessed with the O.J. Simpson trial. I have no idea why. I've never been that interested in it before. But, um, yeah, so I now have this weird sort of triggering, like... Um, thing when I walk around, I'm like, oh, this is where I was. I've I've got the similar. So I've been doing long training runs and actually listening to books. And there's one particular book that, honestly, I I go I I've got to go on a really long run because I need to be in this book. Yeah, but that's <laughs> but that's what I you've got to find a way of getting yourself motivated to do it. Yeah, and actually, I I really want to because I'd be like, oh, I'm really tired, but like, but I've only got 16 minutes of this podcast left so if I just go for another 16 minutes like even if I'm just walking yeah but yeah definitely it was lockdown for me and I think Mm. that for a lot of people that would have been the case is that they finally sort of gave in and was like go on actually let's let's do it I think um, Mia and I started we started actually walking and that that was when she was having a really 
tough time at school. And again, I'd be like, why don't you come for a walk? Why don't you... Constant nagging. And actually, she did at some point then start... We started walking. And I just think there's something about um, whether it's walking or running with someone where you can have really different conversations. You don't Definitely. need to be talking. You know, that whole thing about not looking at each other is very powerful, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it sort of seems like a cliche, but it definitely works. Mm. It definitely, like, go out, I go out for a walk with my kids and I'll get much more out of them yeah. than I would if I'm sat in the house. It's distraction and other things. But, yeah, like, it's definitely... And also, I mean, Mia, if she's 21, yeah. she lived the formative oh. years and the end of her schooling in... Yeah. In, in lockdown, yeah. I, I, I actually don't. I mean, my, my son did his GCSE well, or didn't do them uh, during that period. And I think he's the same age, isn't it? I think he's the same age as um, my uh, my younger daughter. Actually, yeah, yeah. He? So he's eighteen. Now. Yeah, same, same. Um, and it was only afterwards when we when he could go out and things again that he said to me, he "Just I, I was so lonely," and he never mentioned it to me Aww. really at the time. Um, and I just don't, yeah, I don't think that we've properly accounted for what that was like for young people. Because for me, it was like, oh, great, I don't have to go into work every, I don't have to get to London every, like, there was yeah. there was quite a lot of upside for people like me, actually, in being locked down in my family home and, and having to slow down and stuff. But for them, it just must have felt like a robbery. I just think, again, you know, to, to the, the letter I'd write Mia, it would be about that. It would be about, you know, the marathon is a tough thing. I think getting through COVID, like, in the way they had to, is a tough thing. And that's just to note that and put that down and say, you know, you, you need to bank these things, don't you, in your brain. You know, mm -hmm. I've got through a marathon, I've got through this. And actually it means that when the next tough thing happens, then you've got resilience, haven't you, to be able to take things on. Because you do learn, it's like anything. People say to me, oh, you know, like about public speaking or anything. Like, how do yeah. you do it? Like, it's just practice. You you have to practice yeah. resilience as well. Yes. Like, you know, it's yeah. like anything else. You have to practice it. Um, and actually, you don't, in lots of cases, you don't get um, that many opportunities to really practice like calamity no and like, yesterday was so, quite was quite close to calamity <laughs> yeah. there was there was a moment when we weren't going to finish that marathon i could totally be like i'm gonna pack it in it's like whenever i'm watching um wimbledon and they're like the person's like two sets down and like not win a single game i'm like at this point give i'll up. be like Do you know what i'll give up <laughs> my husband's like and that's why you're not an elite sports person <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Because they I'm don't give up. I'm very slow. I'm not an elite sportsman. I'm very slow, but I do not give up. I mean, you know, obviously if she was seriously ill, we would have to give up. But she was on the edge. Yeah. I <laughs> but mean, the I... right side of the edge, thankfully. It's, yeah, it's it's a lot. But, yeah, it's good to give your kids the opportunity to learn that resilience. But I do think that they must be that generation. Also, mm. then having to sit exams in other fields without ever having... So my son's doing his A-levels and it's like, he's never done this. This is not a discipline he has practised because he, he just didn't have to do it in the anywhere near the same way. And I think even just that and, and learning that actually authority figures uh, don't know everything and, and, like, the system sometimes can fall apart because it was like, you are going to do your exams, you're not oh, going to do your exams. There was this whole terrible toing and froing. Um, and I think it did, it's probably given that generation something that we're yet to reap the rewards of, but they definitely will have it. I'm not sure what it is yet, but this... this Do you think in a, in a good of, way? Yeah, or? well, I mean, I think that there's, there's potential for both. There's potential that, 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 you know, you're sort of storing up a mental health crisis. But I also think that there is something about the resilience 
and also not just the expectation that things always go right. And that's I think, one of you know the, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm a glass half full person. I'm so mm. glad you said that because I really think that it's left a legacy of real anxiety and that whole thing about, like you say, you didn't do your GCSEs, so really very stressful doing your A-levels. But I think you're right. There may be something good in being more flexible because, oh, guess what? We can't do this. Or do you sort of mean? So you're right. Yeah. We, we, I feel blessed. I feel really blessed in the life that I've had. Um, you only have to look at, you know, the cost of living crisis. You know, I feel very, yeah. very blessed in so many different ways. I never had coat. Nothing like that has happened to me in my lifetime. And it's mm. happened to them very young. So maybe you're right that there is something in it that they may be more flexible, more yeah. able to change. Just like, you know, change. we were taught to paint by numbers. This is the age you yeah. do this. This is the age you do that. And for some people, there was always some calamitous thing, a death of a parent at a young yeah. age or some terrible disease or something. There was always people who had to be resilient and flexible and yeah. the system wasn't in place for them or it just didn't fit them for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and that was always the case. However, for this entire generation, it is just sort of like sometimes you have to roll with the punches mm. i think that's got to be a good thing that's got to be a good oh well you've cheered, you do you know what you cheered me up because i've never thought <laughs> yeah. of it that way thanks i think i think that <laughs> that is i mean that's what i'm hoping yeah no i see a lot of anxiety in the, quite a few of them actually so yeah. i hope you're right i hope you're right yeah let's hope so um so how would you sign off your letter to your lovely daughter i would say dear mia i'm incredibly proud of you particularly what you did in the marathon but just take that into the rest of your life remember you can do tough things and you're brave and you're stronger than you think you are. Yeah. You, I mean, also when you have to choose to do a tough thing, because you can just stop running a marathon. It's yeah. like when you're in labour or something and you go like, well, there isn't an alternative here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes, like when you're in a tough spot and it's hard. You know, I think like, also that's a privilege. You do just have to cope because coping yeah. is, the only, is the only option. I think, I think um, one of the things that came out in... And some one of the pieces in my book about a lady who's um, she's a cancer oncologist, so she's very senior, and she deals with young people, and she has some very hard conversations to make. You know, telling people that things are you know possibly terminal, right? And at the same time as doing that, she's actually a she's won I think it's fourteen Ironman races, so she oh does yeah she's incredible, right? But she said to me, and I thought about this yesterday, that. Choosing to suffer is a privilege. So choosing to be on yeah. that marathon yesterday when my feet hurt, this hurts, that hurts. Some people have life much tougher. Yeah. And I, I'm very lucky that I can choose to do this with my body. Um, and I think that's a very powerful thought that I certainly yeah. had yesterday and will carry forward, actually. Yeah, if anything, it is a choice. Yeah, it's a choice. A and position. how lucky am I to be able to yeah, make that yeah. choice? So the second letter I asked you to write is to someone who's no longer with us. So oh. who would that be? Now that, um, gosh, it's it's a very, it's hard this, isn't it? Because actually when you ask me that, there's only one person this could be to. Mm -hmm. um, and this is to a friend of mine who's called Nicola Jackson and she died when she was 14. Oh my gosh. I know. Just, and obviously I'm now, I'm now 54. And I think of her often. I remember the first time I met her was on my first day at school and we were standing next to each other, you know, in the in the first queue and we got on really well. Um, I must have been about 10, 11 then. The last day I saw her, 
three or four years later, she was playing tennis. I wasn't playing tennis with her. I remember walking past the tennis court and there she was and she was sort of blonde and had long legs and really good tennis player and little bob and everything. And then shortly after that, I saw her because there was a hubbub and everybody was really worried because she wasn't very well. Anyway, I went and I saw her and she was lying down and she was making very little sense um, talking about, oh, my, I can't feel my feet, I can't feel my feet. And the last time I saw her, I was trying to warm up her feet. And How did she die? She died of a brain embolism. Oh, my God. As far as I know. But then it's so... what? So there's so many kind of weird, conflicting things about it because, you know, Your this is... Your memory will become like a well, collage. Yeah, OK. And also mm. because I think people were trying to protect us. Mm. So she left that night... And as far as I know, and I don't, there's also many unknowns in it. I don't mm. think she died. She went to hospital and I think she died a few days later, but it was half term. So yeah. we didn't get told. And then we eventually were told. And obviously it was deeply, deeply shocking. Deeply shocking. 14, um, that is. That I know. Is and I just think about nice. her often. I think about her often because I just think I've lived this life and I've had a real, and I, in some ways, what happened has really affected me and the decisions I make because she never got to make any of those decisions. Mm. And I feel, and I've been over it. I mean, it's so, because it comes, she just comes back to me a lot. Um, and then I did try and find her because again, you know, in those days, they, I think when they were trying to protect us, they didn't really tell us what was happening and they said she'd been to hospital and this had happened. And, you know, it was all kind of a bit, it, it wasn't, I'm not saying it was a cover up, but it was yeah. just a, and then I tried you know, like, I mean, I've tried about 10 years ago, maybe more than 10 years to go to go back to the school and try and find her parents because I would love, you know, if, if anything comes out of this podcast, if I get yeah. in contact with her parents, I would be so delighted because I want to tell them that I think about her. You know, she's still my friend. Yeah. And I've lived a lot of my life because of I that. I mean, that's funny, isn't it? The idea that she's still your friend. It's like, so... that, that, it does, that doesn't stop. No. <laughs> it doesn't stop no. when somebody... It's, and actually, friends, you, you don't have the same status. Like, my mum died, but she'll always be my mum. Like, you yeah. can't... That, and nobody questions that. That's, yeah. not, that's not to be called into question. But... Um, but but your friend, like, she's still your friend, even, yeah. like... And she may not have been my friend if we... Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's... yeah. My kids were the asking the other day, if I hadn't got pregnant with my first one, do we think that me and Dad would still be together? And yeah. I was like, the honest answer is probably probably not, but I, can't, I just can't answer that question because I can only see the life that yeah. I've had in the situation that I've had it. But um, not that I don't love him. I love him more now than I did then, but mm. who knows? You just don't know yeah. what he's going to... But she sort of always in time, you know. As I say, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, hadn't really thought about that until you picked it up. She's still my friend, and I still think about her. And I just wish that I could. I, I don't know if her parents have watched me on the telly or still or remember or even know that no, I was it's you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you see what I mean? And I just wish I could. Hopefully, maybe this this might be a way that maybe yeah. they hear that and they, you know, that she's had a really deep effect on my life. Yeah, I mean, and then I another think... way it's affected me as well is I'm very um, uh, my family kind of like take they're always teasing me in quite a mean way actually. <laughs> Not my daughters because they know it's really because it really really resonates with me. You know, I am Mrs. Health and Safety. Mm. You know, I really am. I've done every flipping, you know 
course that you first aid course that you can do and you know i'm quite i'm, I'm useful in a crisis do you think that that comes from Absolutely. being exposed to all the worst stories because uh, my, because obviously in my job i meet families especially where children have died through some sort of terrible accident or right, calamity yeah. and so with my kids my kids do this thing where they roll their eyes at me and they go oh let me guess you know a kid that died from this like do, yes. when they throw grapes in the air and catch them in their mouth i am yep. literally like smacking them out of the but you know i am i have been because of my job and you will have been similarly exposed to every single possible angle of a possible accident or loss mm. of a child yeah yeah yes and it's Absolutely. terrifying i'm sure it comes from yes first of all her uh, because I've always... I mean, I should have really been a doctor or something, actually. I kind of feel like I failed... Of course I didn't fail her, but, you know, I feel like I failed in some way in that moment. And I feel like I failed by not being there. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous that when she died, but, you know, this is, I was 14. Yeah. But I've definitely carried that with me. I say I've done all the first aid courses, so I'm probably quite useful, actually, and I know I, know I am in an accident because I've, I've just done the courses. And nowadays, actually, I mean, I, I don't know enough about yeah. it. Um, there is a lot of people who, you know, it seems like even just in car accidents and things, people who died when they were younger, where I just think they, they might still be alive now, today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If this were to happen nowadays because of various yeah. advancements. And that is, that's also, that doesn't make it any better either. It's a bit like, oh. You're right, like you, I know every single bad thing that's ever happened. Ever happened one, to anyone ever. Yeah, ever. Yeah. In the la well, certainly in the last 25 years. And yeah. now, luckily, I've had having a mini break, which I'm really enjoying, <laughs> by the way. Um, and for example, there was once when somebody got, oh gosh, got bitten, a friend of mine's child got bitten by a dog, right? Like a little terrier. The day I'd interviewed somebody whose child had been killed by a dog. I mean, it's I'm that like, I'm sort so of thing. sorry, I have to report your dog. It's like, no, no, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I've spoken to somebody today whose child was killed by a dog. I'm going to report your dog. I'm really funny about my kids putting anything around their necks or anything, and that literally yeah. like their school toys, and they're like, oh, for God's sake, Mum. Oh. But, but that's because, you know, I have been exposed You've, to the extreme yeah. end of it. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, and actually, similarly, my younger son, Danny, he's named after my husband's best friend who died when they were teenagers okay. um, in a car accident. And yeah. so, you know, I, th I think it is really, really, like, affecting uh, I think to if something you for happens, the rest of your life. Yeah. Especially when you've form got teenagers yourself. It's, yeah, like, very formative, Very formative years, isn't it, at that point? And I just think, you know, I think nowadays they'd probably handle it, probably hopefully you'd hope be handled in a slightly different way, which didn't leave people with questions unanswered yeah. and all the rest of it well i think they do i mean my kids at their school two kids have died one from a long-term illness one very yeah. suddenly uh while they were at school and they did they properly like you know they talk to them about what happened um and they yeah. lay on uh you know the opportunity for counseling and just sessions to talk Nothing. about uh, to yeah. ask any questions so that you're not left thinking could I have done more or it's that being left with it but I think that, that yeah the, the psychology now is you should talk to them yeah. about it so uh, how would you sign off your letter oh, I'd to say her? dear Nicola um, I'm so sorry that you missed out and I'd love to be in touch with your mum and dad and tell them how much you meant to me and you still mean to me it would be nice to hear that actually you live on yeah that's on, it. That's people exactly. People left behind because you're not forgotten. She's not, not forgotten. forgotten. No, even for, I mean, you know, there's probably not a month doesn't go past that I don't remember it in some way.
We'll be back for the final letter after a short break. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The last letter I asked you to think about is to somebody who wouldn't know what effect they'd had on your life and would be surprised. So who would that be? Um, This is to uh, a mentor who... And I think mentors are so important because they really can make a difference to people's lives. And this was not in any way kind of like a formal mentoring. Um, And I'm so thankful and grateful. And I smile when I talk about him. So he's called Neil Dunwoody. And I think he works for Sky Night. Hi, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when I... um, So I I spent um, a year living in in Latin America. um, And then I came back and I'd always... I was obsessed. I don't know about you, but were you obsessed by the news when you were... Yeah, obsessed, obsessed. Right. So age nine, I used to listen to The World Tonight. Yeah, I mean... Totally inappropriate. We were both reading The Guardian as children and being obsessed by the news. So, I mean, (laughs) it seems like an odd childhood, but I was totally obsessed with the news. So the first time I ever knew what I wanted to do was when I was in Chile working as an interpreter and I'd been invited to go on a radio show to explain to them about the expedition. And I sat in that radio station in deepest, darkest Patagonia, looked across the table and I was like, that's the job I want. I want Mm. to be the person asking the questions. 
Forward Wind, um, then went to went worked on the Today program, <laughs> making oh tea. My gosh. Making tea in the morning. And early, also, so you got used to the early start, early, uh, early on. Yeah. And I, well, one of my other jobs was I was really good at mending the photocopier. That was I mean, one of my, I was, that was one of the things, I was real skilled that was. Um, and then the other job was I used to have to wake up, because the, the presenters couldn't wake up themselves, really. I used to have to phone them in the morning, go, hello, Peter, it's Louise Minchin. I wasn't Minchin then, by the way, but it's Louise here. <laughs> Can you, you need to Get wake up. up and come to work. Can you believe that was a real job? That is <laughs> impressive. Oh, there. and then I'd have to get um, John Humphreys, his, his Alpen with skinny milk. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny the things you remember, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I did that um, after uni. And then I realised that basically because I'd, I'd got a, you know, a good degree and all the rest of it, but I'd gone in as a radio production assistant and I might as well have had really stupid written on my head. <laughs> because if you, it was just one of those things, if you went in at that level, you were always going to be doing the calls and the yeah. skinny Alpen, right? And I just thought, I can't... You know, I've got a degree. I want to be a journalist. I want to be a reporter. I don't want to be making everybody's tea for the rest of my life. What am I going to do? So I then went back to uni and got myself um, a radio journalism degree, actually. Not degree, but uh, MPhil, I think it was. Mm. And forward wind, forward wind. John Humphreys, bless him, said to me, when you've got this... First of all, everybody in the Today programme thought I wasn't even going to get on the course because I was radio production assistant, a.k.a. stupid. When I came back and I'd got a place, they were like what you've got a place at the London College of Printing. It's like, yes, me. <laughs> what makes me laugh is that all the, some of those people, you know, now I'd be sitting in the studio on the breakfast sofa going, well, Tony, yeah. I'm going to make up the name. You standing out there in the cold rain, tell me what's going on. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's always justice, Oh, is it blowing a gale? Oh, what a shame. Oh, a little bit cold. Uh, anyway, um, I, um, bless him, um, John Humphrey said to me, right, what you need to do when you've done that is you need to go and work in local radio because you can make masses of mistakes there. I'm not sure that's a brilliant thing to say to local radio, but <laughs> I went to local radio and I got adopted. I went to Radio Berkshire and I was such a bad reporter, Jess. I was <laughs> so rubbish. I would have to write... So I'd go and write a cue about some story, two ducks missing from a pond, for example, <laughs> yeah? And, and, I'd, and he'd, he'd make me write the cue and I would sit there for two hours and I would cry and not be able to do it and all the rest of it. And then I'd write it eventually. And then I'd sit next to him and we'd rewrite it with some more tears. <laughs> and I just I just couldn't see it was like it was like double dutch to me. I just couldn't understand how you would do it and how it would make sense and how you'd manage it in three sentences. And um, he spent so much time with me, just sitting down patiently next to me, waiting for something in my brain to click. And I think he saw something in me that clearly I didn't see at that point or hadn't made everything connect. And he said, right, what you're going to do is you're going to print out your cue, you're going to print out my cue, and you're going to put them by your mirror... And then one day in the morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to be able to write. I'm like, no, that's never going to happen. And then forward wind some many years later. The day that Colonel Gaddafi got captured, I was reading the, the one o'clock news on the BBC. So my career's had quite a yeah. trajectory by that point from not being able to write about the duck. So reading the one o'clock news. 
And um, and I always used to like do the one o'clock news and they'd be really quite collaborative, actually, and the various people writing all the cues and the headlines and all the rest of it. And then I'd always go and eat something at quarter to one because otherwise my tummy would rumble and it'd be awf awfully awkward and I couldn't speak if I was hungry. So I went to go and get my soup, came back into the newsroom and, and there's nobody... There'd be about six of us on the desk, right? There was nobody at the desk. And when the news, you know, big breaking news story hits yeah. the newsroom, there's this, like, buzz that goes, you know, you can hear it. And I walked in, I was like, what's happened? They're like, Colonel Gaddafi's been captured. I'm like... I guess that means that the one o'clock news is going to be a little bit different than it was when I planned it, when we planned it. And I look around and by that time it's like eight minutes to one and there's still nobody at the desk. And then it's five minutes to one and there's me and the director at the desk. And I'm thinking, OK, so nobody's written the headlines. And I look at him and I, I go, um, so the headlines, um, I guess I'm writing them then. <laughs> Because the director able to do it. So, because... so literally in that moment, five minutes to go, nobody else is there. Somebody's got oh to write God. the headlines. I mean, I'm a presenter, so I should be able to write the headlines. But there's quite a lot of you know, and I'm just like wrote wrote the headlines. I don't think anybody checked them. And that day, I just thought, thank you, Neil Dunwoody, because here I am writing the headlines for the one o'clock news on a massive big a breaking day. news story. And I could only do that because he had the time, the patience and the kindness to hold my hand back in the day. Yeah, I mean... So that, he changed that, my life. Yeah, that, that I mean, that is impressive. Uh, and well, people, people often don't know as well when yeah. they're doing it that they're doing it. Like, people will say, oh, you know, you really helped me. And I just think, oh, I just, yeah. I, you know, like, it's not necessarily conscious, but mm. people sitting and being patient with you... Um, and not just being like an ass. That's why I get annoyed at this sort of conversation about people being, you know, I'm just a tough boss and it's just like, but are you getting the most out of people but with look, that look strategy? What he, look what he did. You know, yeah. I, I went on to have a career, you know, it, it was a career. I think what he maybe saw was that I loved the idea of being able to do it. I just didn't know how to do it. Do you see what I mean? So, you know, the passion was there and the work ethic was there and, and the, you know, I knew what a good story was. I just couldn't write it. And to sort of go out of his way, you know, he wasn't being paid to do that. He wasn't being mm. asked to do that. He just did that because he wanted to do that. You know, that's what he does. I won't be the only person he's done that for. And I just yeah. think that's an incredibly generous thing to do for people. What a guy. Yeah. But you probably mentor people without even realising that you do without it. Without knowing that you're doing it at all. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people you haven't even met, like, they're like, oh, you know, you made me want to get involved in politics. Like, when people write you those letters, you just think, oh, gosh, well, well good. I didn't intend to, you know, like... Yeah. I wasn't thinking of you uh, particularly, but well done. I'm glad that that's the message that got across. But also just I think anyone giving anyone any time mm -hmm. in modern society is like it's that that's a rarity, isn't it? To sit and be patient uh, and just be like, it's all right. Don't rush. We'll get there. That that there's immense amount of power in those words and I, I think that we've all been taught to be like oh no come on quick 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 especially in a news environment yeah. especially he, in a news environment it, it must be incredibly fraught yeah and he just did it I mean you know for me it seemed like he did it for hours and he probably did I mean he really did to invest that time in me and actually in some ways what's silly about it is because you know, he did it at Radio Berkshire and I probably... And I wasn't even there for very long, so all the benefit came later when I'm on the one o'clock news or whatever it was. But he just kind of... That real paying it forwards was just 
such a sweet thing to do. And I try, because of him, to, you know, mentor other young journalists as well and talk to them and give them, you know, I wish I did it more than I do, but give them a bit of time just to ask questions or whatever it is, try and help as well. Do you miss the news environment, like that sort of fraught environment? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like politics is up and down and for a spell it was so fraught and exciting that then when it started to just be a bit regular again I was a bit like sort of missed the drama. Do you know what <laughs> I absolutely don't miss it. I don't miss it. I just I had no idea and you won't because you're still in the drama. Yeah. Have any idea of the impact that having to be across every single news story everywhere in I the mean, whole that world is so at tedious. all points had yeah. on my just on my brain and on my sleep and on everything it really did and then the hours as well um you know getting up at 3:40 in the morning and i accept that people have really tough jobs but for me it was the hours were really difficult and i it's not my i now know because <laughs> i now sleep until I think it was 9.05 this morning, Jess. Well, I mean, you did the marathon yesterday, so, I mean, that's <laughs> barely a lion, <laughs> frankly. To be fair, I don't need to do a marathon to sleep <laughs> till 9.05. <laughs> um, I had no idea uh, how invasive it had been, both the news and the hours, on a lot of my life and joie de vivre, actually. My husband was a night shift worker before I was elected, and mm. he, and so he must have been, like, yeah, like 35, going on 40 when he packed it in. And he said, like, I had no... He said, what I didn't realise is that I've felt hungover for the past 10 yeah. years. It's like... But I didn't know it because I was in it. But now that I don't do that, it was, it's like having a horrible hangover. It was like, for me, it was like jet lag, permanent mm. jet lag. And actually, it took COVID for me to realise because during COVID, obviously, we had holidays, but we weren't able to go anywhere, were we? So <laughs> no. I was at home on holiday and on one of those breaks I suddenly realized that I was going to bed at 11 o'clock at night and not waking up and I'm for ages and thinking I'm being really happy doing that and reading and I don't know just like potting around the house at 11 11 30 at night and I suddenly realized oh hang on a second actually my you know my, my personal body clock is not made for these hours yeah but I didn't I mean, realize it, I think it's I think it has a limited run on most people, actually. There is a reason why we wake and sleep at the times that we do, yeah. actually. It's tough gig, night work. Yeah, and, I, and huge Early respect. mornings in the cold as well. It might be all right if you live in California. It's you not know, so it was, great if you live was, here. It was the dark that got yeah. me. It yeah, was the dark, the dark because there was only six weeks in the year where it was light when I got to work. Only six weeks, and in those weeks, it felt those the only six weeks it felt slightly easier. And then also, you had to be, I learned quite early on that I would often when I first before I'd learned this, I'd come home and then I'd kind of go to sleep. And then by the time I woke up again, it was dark again. So actually, I was having very little daylight hours. So that's what, another reason why I took up exercise was I was like, I'll come home, I will go out into the UV light sunshine, even mm. if it's raining just so I've got light in my eyes. Otherwise, my whole life was literally in the dark. Yeah, my, I mean, my husband literally got deficient in vitamin D yeah, because of it, do. because uh, he just never, ever saw the sunlight. Yeah. And now, funnily enough, like, he properly, like, runs towards it, like, once, you know, winter sun and things, because yeah. I think it is just a deficiency of yeah. just light in your life. It's so important, so... Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you make me feel positive that maybe I'm not going to miss it terribly I when I pack you know, it all in. 
Uh, my, my my best one of my best mates um, said to me, and she was really really high up in news and you know like me on it every second knew everything even more than I did, and she said you won't even watch it. I'm like, of course I will. But don't tell them I never even watched. No. It's a bit like when people are like, did you watch Question Time? And I think, no, I watched the Bake Off. Good. Good. I'm so (laughs) delighted to hear that. Yeah, like, I don't spend my entire weekends, like, when people are, like, on the Sunday shows, I'm like, oh, God, no, I'm I'm literally... (laughs) Saturday Kitchen, that's what I want to watch on... uh... The best well, you bits. need to because you've got to have a variety in life, haven't you? It's too much otherwise. If you're dealing with it all day, every day, oh. you do have to yeah. like, so step I th- away I from it. I was very surprised by that and I also felt this sort of mountain of responsibility. When I left that day, the day I left BBC Breakfast, this sort of mountain of responsibility just slid off my shoulders that I didn't even know was there because yeah. you know I just felt all the time that... I couldn't slip up, obviously. I had to get things right for the... Just because I care about the audience. Do you see what I mean? Because I want to make sure that I'm going to... It's nice the way that everybody's having a bit of banter, though, I think, on BBC (laughs) Breakfast. Oh, no, absolutely. Breakfast News definitely is the opportunity for a little bit more light relief, I'd say. But I just felt felt the responsibility of of telling people at home bad news in the kindest way that I could. Because I don't... You know, I mean, some of the stuff I've had to say is just horrific, like you. So, yeah. so I think that kind of responsibility not to have to do that anymore has yeah. been... You've done your dues. You've Thank paid you. your debt. <laughs> Thank so you. how would you sign off the letter to your lovely mentor, oh, Mr Dunwoody? I, say? I would say... Dear Neil, I cannot thank you enough for your time, your patience and your kindness and you completely and utterly changed the trajectory of my career for which I'm forever grateful. Thank you. On the story about ducks in ponds. (laughs) (laughs) I can still be talking about ducks in ponds. Well, Louise, it has been a total pleasure talking to you. Thanks oh, so much. Thank now, you. I want you to go and put ice on your body and I need it on rest. my left knee. Definitely. Stay in bed till five past ten tomorrow. Oh, thanks. I'd love to. <laughs> it's been so, I feel like I've had a lovely chat. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, check us out on socials at Jess Phillips Pod. That's also where you can get in touch with the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more, please follow Yours Sincerely and give us a rating on this app or wherever you get your podcasts. And why not get out a pen, put it to paper and write a letter to someone telling them about this podcast. Goodbye. This has been an Audio Always original.